This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is David Holloway. I'm the director of the Institute uh, for International Studies, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here today for an address by Her Excellency Mary McAleese, President of Ireland. Uh, and I'm joined in my welcome by John Hennessy, the Provost of the University, and by uh, Bob Joss, the Dean of the Graduate School of Business. Mary McAleese was elected President of Ireland in 1997, the eighth person to hold that position, uh, and the first from Northern Ireland, or indeed from Ulster as a whole, to do so. President McAleese was born in Belfast and obtained her Bachelor of Laws degree at the Queen's University there. Uh, soon thereafter, she moved to Dublin, where she was appointed the Reed Professor of Criminal Law, Criminology, and Penology at Trinity College. And she is a member of both the Inn of Court of Northern Ireland and of the King's Inns in Dublin. Professor, uh, I beg your pardon, President McAleese. <laughs> Forgive me for omitting your... Uh, Elevation. Uh, President McAleese held the Reed professorship for 12 years, uh, with a break of two years during which she worked for Radio Telefiche Aaron as a television journalist and presenter. In 1987, she returned to Belfast to Queens to become director of the Institute of Professional Legal Studies, which trains barristers and solicitors for the legal profession in Northern Ireland. And in 1994, she became uh, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the University while continuing as Director of the Institute. Before her election, President McAleese was very active in public life in both the North and the South of Ireland. She was, for example, a founder member of Belfast Women's Aid and a member of the Dublin Council of Social Welfare. She was a founder member of the Irish Commission for Prisoners Overseas and a member of Through the Glass Ceiling, an organization for the advancement of women in the workplace. She was a founder member of the Campaign for Homosexual Law Reform, a member of the Catholic Church's Episcopal Delegation to the New Ireland Forum, and co-chair of the Interchurch Working Party on Sectarianism. Under the Irish Constitution, as President McAleese pointed out in her inaugural address, the president has no policies, but she can have a theme. Building bridges is the theme that President McAleese has chosen. This has great significance for Ireland, not only because of the need for peace and reconciliation on the island, but because Irish society is going through such rapid and profound changes, not least as a result of the remarkable dynamism of the economy over the last 10 years. And to this difficult and responsible role of bridge builder, President McAleese has brought considerable experience a forceful intelligence and great personal warmth. As one element in her theme, President McAleese has emphasized the ties between Ireland and the Irish diaspora. Those people who are living, those Irish people who are living and working in the United States, like myself and no doubt like many others in the room, are extremely grateful to her uh, for this link to our native land. And it's therefore a particular privilege for me to invite you to uh, join me in welcoming uh, Her Excellency Mary McAleese, President of Ireland.
Provost and Dean, Dr Holloway and distinguished guests, since I think three out of four of us on this platform have a very strong link uh, to Ireland. Um, I hope you don't mind if I open my remarks just with a thank you in the Irish language. It's more an honour, because it's more in pleasure to live in shot living you in Stanford. We live wake us live us in Queen Curl, as us in Falcha, a Curl Rome. It's a great pleasure for me to be here to join you today in this wonderful seat of learning on a fascinating, wonderful summer's day. The first sunshine that we have seen actually in the last couple of days, believe it or not, uh, typical uh, of the Irish who come to California. We presume that the sun is going to uh, shine on us from the moment we get off the plane, but it just it took a little time to catch up with us, but it caught up with us today at Stanford. And I very much appreciate the warm welcome that we've received here and indeed everywhere that uh, we have visited during this brief tour, a brief trip to the west coast of America. It says an awful lot, I think, for the warmth and affection of the bonds which exist between our two countries. Um, those are bonds uh, that are based, of course, uh, for many people on sentiment and nostalgia, uh, as we heard with the, the, um, from Professor Holloway, the, the talk of the, the diaspora, the global Irish family. But of course, they're also, they're also much more vibrant and even that than just sentiment and nostalgia. Uh, we deeply cherish and appreciate the very special place that Ireland holds in the heart of this great nation and which has found very real, very tangible expression in the assistance that we have received in our lasting search for peace on the island of Ireland. So it's not just sentiment, it's not nostalgia. Those bonds go very, very deep indeed and they are evident in so many aspects of our life, not least something as a profound a consequence as the future of our young people. And I come before you today as the president of a nation which is experiencing, thankfully, mercifully, an unprecedented level of growth and prosperity. One of the great things that we used to export in the past in great numbers, of course, was our people. That was our biggest export. And for a long time, of course, that export of people was, um, it was a drain on our psyche. Uh, we exported them because our people, uh, our place at home, our homeland, simply did not have the wherewithal to economically sustain its people. So for the last 150 years, we've experienced that, uh, that growth of the global Irish family. Um, and it is a remarkable phenomenon that in this generation, we have reversed for the first time in 150 years the tide of emigration. And while that drain, that, that psychological drain of the last 150 years um, went very, very deep and had very profound consequences for us and for our history, one of the benefits that it has given us uh, as we look back with a more, um, let's just say, a, a more um, distant eye from those, uh, from those days of, um, of draining emigration is that, of course, it has given us this global Irish family. We are on the island of Ireland, some five million people, north, south, east and west, but our global Irish family is 70 million. And that's a lot of people, uh, for example, in Australia, uh, one third of the population is Irish. Here in America, over 45 million people identify themselves as having an Irish connection. And we are very grateful for that global Irish family because they intersect Ireland and Irish culture into so many parts of the world and they make their friends and their neighbours comfortable with Ireland and Irish culture. And I'd like to think that if we are, and we are indeed experiencing this unprecedented level of growth and prosperity, our global Irish family has fed into that and has helped create and generate the ambience in which that has been possible. Across the entire spectrum of the criteria used to judge economic success, 
we have a lot of good news to tell. Less than a decade ago, our GDP per capita was just 60% of the European Union average. It has now risen above the European norm, thanks to average annual growth rates of over 8% since 1993. And forecasters expect growth rates of over 5% per year to continue in the medium term. So that's a very comforting set of statistics. Our inflation, our interest rates are low, and unemployment, which was a major problem for us not so terribly long ago, has plummeted now to under 6% and dropping all the time. And so there is a real buzz of confidence and optimism in the air. Many people whom I've met on this trip who have been back to Ireland in recent years after a gap talk about this extraordinary buzz they feel, this can-do sense that's about the place, this culture shift. It's as if we've gone into a different gear. Uh, instead of the drain of energy, we now are fueled with energy. And the figures are remarkable, but it is important to emphasize, and it's one of the reasons why I am here in this part of the world at this time, it is I think it's true to say we could not have accomplished what we have accomplished in Ireland on our own. Inward investment, in particular, inward investment from the United States of the high-tech companies associated, of course, uh, so much with this part of the world, that has made a massive contribution to our surging economy. Their decision to locate in Ireland, of course, uh, has been based on a number of our key competitive advantages. We couldn't rely on nostalgia to, uh, or sentiment to encourage people to invest in Ireland. Hard-headed, shrewd business people take hard-headed, shrewd decisions. And we are fortunate that we possess a well-educated, highly motivated and skilled young workforce, which has the immense advantage at a time when there are worldwide shortages of software developers and technicians of being exactly that, a cohort of available, flexible, highly intelligent labour. We have short lines of communication between investors and policymakers with our Industrial Development Authority as a very trusted, well-known, globally well-known conduit. And of course, we have a favourable tax regime which has been put in place to seduce foreign investors. Uh, but there is no doubt, of course, that it is our own pivotal position as a gateway to the vast markets of the European Union which has helped us to maximise our other benefits. No country survives on foreign investment alone, and our access to the European marketplace has been of equal benefit to our domestic entrepreneurs, encourages competition, of course, efficiency, and most of all, this dynamic self-belief in our ability to succeed, which characterises the feel, if there is a feel of modern Ireland, I think that's one of its characteristics, this dynamic self-belief. Our European membership, and more specifically, our determination to join the single European currency, these required us to meet fairly stringent fiscal targets. And in achieving that discipline, and we achieved it very well, we put our economy into even better shape with record budget surpluses and the capacity to invest and to meet the challenges that the future will bring. So those are things that give us tremendous pride and confidence in the future. The benefits which the European Union have brought, of course, can't be measured in purely economic terms. When we first joined the Union, then known as the EEC, it has changed its name a couple of times in a relatively short period of time, but back in the early 1970s, there were many people in Ireland who feared that we had more or less sold our soul, I suppose you could say, for economic gain. And these cultural Jeremiahs predicted that our very rich and distinctive Irish culture 
would inevitably dissolve within a European melting pot of larger nations, that we, a small island, would be effectively culturally obliterated by our bigger partners in Europe. In fairness to them, having called them cultural Jeremiahs, I think in fairness to them it would have to be said that our experience of colonization and our experience of having to fight so hard for our independence was probably entitled to make us a little bit at least skeptical of partnerships with larger entities. We had fought so hard to protect our culture and to protect our nationhood that perhaps that, that syndrome of the Jeremiah is not entirely inexplicable. Um, but yet, the truth is, paradoxically, our membership of the European Union has had the very opposite effect from that predicted by the Jeremiahs. Never before have we been so culturally confident. It's as if the European Union has provided an extraordinary catwalk, a, a cultural showcase for us. And never before have we taken such pride in our distinctive traditions and heritage. Side by side with the economic success, we are also experiencing a period of extraordinary cultural confidence. I suppose what the voices of doom did not understand and had to feel before they could believe it is that at the very heart of the European Union is the concept of a communion of equals uh, based on mutual respect regardless of size of nation and indeed it's, um, it's a model which far from seeking to impose uniformity deeply respects and admires and has place for cultural diversity. And of course that admiration gave us in turn a newfound confidence in our heritage and culture, in our uniqueness as a people, and it opened this window, this showcase in which we could express to a much bigger world who we are, what we are, what we believe in. It restored to us a sense of self-worth that had been drained away by our experience as a colonized nation and later, of course, by those years of emigration that I mentioned and economic stagnation, which followed independence. That confidence is evident today in the energy and vibrance of so many aspects of Irish culture. But, of course, as I mentioned, it hasn't been a, a purely cultural phenomenon. Uh, we've seen this extraordinary uh, cycle of economic and cultural self-confidence enhancing the cycle of success within our economy as a whole. It's created a virtual uh, and a virtuous circle of success in which Ireland economically, socially and culturally now finds itself. And of course, uh, that has very strong parallels in business terms. Most successful enterprises know that their long-term success depends on the interaction of a number of important key factors. Key among them is the ethos of dealing in a fair and a satisfactory way with their stakeholders, whether it's customers, shareholders, suppliers, employees, or the community in which they are located. It's quite simply good for business, as you well know, if people feel they've been dealt with fairly and ethically. And if one follows this approach, it's the safest bet to assume that if you've dealt fairly with people, they'll come back to you. You'll get repeat business. Uh, you'll get a positive approach from your employees. You'll build a culture of trust and care and service that helps everyone it's a win-win situation. But of course the key word in this context is trust. And trust is a concept which lies, needs to lie at the heart of our banking and our commercial sectors underpinning good business practice and of course it's the basis upon which the best employer-employee relationships sit. One definition states that to be trustworthy is to be deserving of confidence. And how often do we know, have we seen the markets react to the phrase, 
lacking in confidence when it is applied to major businesses, to governments, to agencies. It is a phrase that is feared in boardrooms and government agencies all over the world. However, if one were to apply that phrase lacking in confidence in another context, it could also apply to neighbourhoods, to localities, both in Europe and the United States, uh, areas that are described as urban black spots, blighted neighbourhoods or indeed disadvantaged areas. And these are areas which are characterised by features such as poor housing, low educational thresholds, high welfare dependency and very significant levels of unemployment. And all of these factors are problematic in themselves. But I think what is even more insidious and more difficult to tackle, and it's something that the Irish I think have a particular understanding of, is the way in which these things generate and sustain a sense of low self-esteem. And where you have low self-esteem, you so often have low achievement, low energy output. That fundamental lack of confidence by society generally and by the residents of these marginalised localities in particular, that lack of confidence in themselves and their communities, uh, translates into lack of, lack of belief in their future, a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And it's one of the biggest barriers that we have to overcome if the socially excluded sectors of our society are to be more fully integrated. And that certainly is a big challenge for this modern blessed generation in Ireland. It's an ethical challenge. It's also an economic challenge, which we simply can't afford to ignore. Because at a business level, it is quite simply bad for business if a significant number of people are not part of normal, everyday civic society. Not just because taxation and expenditure, of course, are higher, in terms of feeding dependency. We have increasing crime rates, the supply of skilled labour is lower, uh, but also because, of course, businesses don't and can't exist in a vacuum outside the general social and cultural milieu. And this is an issue that I just want to spend a couple of moments talking about because it is a key millennium challenge for this generation in Ireland. Uh, I know that it's not peculiar to Ireland. Uh, the phenomenon of social exclusion is of particular importance for both our countries. I don't think either Ireland or America can have slept very easily at the conclusion of the recent United Nations report on poverty, which brought the news, if we needed it, brought home to us again, that America and Ireland, in that order, have the highest and the second highest levels of poverty among the 17 Western nations surveyed. Uh, the measure, of course, is not one of absolute poverty, but of the disparity between the richest and the poorest in our societies. But it should be of great concern to us that this gap is continuing to grow. And I know that it is certainly an issue for this generation in Ireland. Uh, there is, of course, the, the old adage that the rising tide lifts all boats, and that is not entirely true. Somebody, some wag once remarked that, in fact, well, the rising tide lifts all yachts. Uh, that is truer, I think, than the rising tide lifts all boats. But there are some boats that are so badly holed um, that the tide uh, either doesn't get to them or they're so far up the beach that they really need the extra bit of help. And it is so important that we do not simply complacently assume that economic success um, will inevitably lift all those boats, or worse still, that we complacently assume that economic success and social disparity inevitably go hand in hand. Uh, a vibrant modern economy is not necessarily a healthy one, particularly so if large sections of its citizens experience exclusion and inequality from generation to generation. 
and as people here who are many of you engaged in business and interested in business, you'll sometimes have had the experience of an individual who he or she has not been, for whatever reason, able to achieve his or her potential. And we know that good employers invest a lot of money in training programs to motivate individuals, to encourage them, to get them to look at themselves through fresh eyes, to see inside themselves skills and talents and to develop those skills and talents which have lain latent but need the help of a good environment to bring them to the surface. And that's because the good employer knows that in the long term, while you unpack the individual and reintroduce the individual to him or herself in a new way, you know that um, the benefits accrue not just to the individual, but they accrue to the firm, they accrue to the community, they accrue to the country. In much the same manner, it's good for the general business environment. If enterprise itself, if the world of commerce contributes time, resources and expertise to supporting the disadvantaged areas, to being involved in their lives and in their futures. Now, in our view in Ireland, this is not an issue simply for government alone or for the voluntary sector alone, but rather a partnership uh, between business and the community is, in particular with the perspective that business can bring to bear on these issues, on the expertise and especially the economic motivation, um, business has a lot to offer to ensure that disadvantage does not remain the lot of those who are marginalised for the future. There is merit in having society in which the concepts of democracy are deeply instilled into the hearts of people, where ownership of society is held and seen to be held by citizens and not just by the state or by those who occupy the mainstream. There's also a strategic benefit accruing to the business sector in having a vibrant democratic process that engages every citizen so that the talents of all are fully allowed to blossom and fully utilised. And it's important to emphasise that what I mean here by social inclusion is not simply about feeding or increasing dependency. It has to be about making people believe they do count and that they can count, that they are being given the opportunity to develop their own independence, giving them the training, the support to stand on their own two feet. We know there are people who won't respond to that kind of challenge, but there are many who, given the right sets of circumstances, given the right uh, push, given the right ambience, will take the opportunity if the fresh start is available to them. And I think this fact has been acknowledged by the business community in many countries in schemes which, although broadly similar, adopt the kind of different strategies that each cultural, each cultural context demands. I think of initiatives such as the Foundation for the Mid-South, which I know operates in the states of Arkansas, Louisiana and Mississippi, uh, the King Baudouin Foundation in Belgium, Tyne and Ware Foundation in the United Kingdom, the London Community uh, Foundation in Canada. And these initiatives, all very different, uh, all with different complexions, nonetheless, they engage the public and private sectors together to support targeted communities. And in doing that, they send out a very strong message about the role of business in the community, the importance um, of being part of a community and intersecting yourself into the life of the community, not just into the lives of those who are successful, those who are buyers and sellers, but into the lives of all the community. And in doing that, I believe they bring uh, a new sense of confidence to those whom they help, uh, a new sense of self-belief that the bedrock, not alone of vibrant communities, but also of successful businesses is linked to, intrinsically linked to this partnership approach the sense of belonging to a wider community than just the world of commerce. In Ireland, we have a new such initiative, 
the Foundation for Investing in Communities, a joint venture between the government and the corporate sector, which is working deliberately engaging itself in the lives of those who experience social exclusion and poverty, giving business an opportunity to bring all the skills that are locked inside the corporate sector and to squeeze those skills, to squeeze out of them uh, a huge amount now of added value which will be put to the service of the poor. And I think that's a, a wonderful message to give to those who are marginalised because the world of business seems to them such an alien and uncaring world at times. My message today, if it is a message, is that according as our economies grow and develop, it is vital that we strive to ensure that the benefits of that growth are more equally distributed. By working together in partnership, government and business can achieve much in terms of creating the kind of society in which social well-being increases side by side with economic progress. And that has to be a noble ambition for all of us for the millennium, but much more than a noble ambition. I think we have to make it something, an achievable target, because the decisions we make now will determine the kind of world that we pass on to the next generation. All of us want it to be a decent world, and our aim should be to be a world where the resource of each human being is skillfully and generously unlocked so that each is and feels part of the mainstream. Many of those who left Ireland to come to these shores left because they did not feel part of the mainstream and could not be part of the mainstream in their own country. Had they remained, their genius, their talent, their insight, their skills would simply never have blossomed. They came here to this country, and indeed for many of them in the early years, they worked not to create opportunities for themselves, but rather they worked hard to create opportunities for their children, to give space so that, and to create space so that the genius of their children would not be um, would not be locked in or uh, stereotyped or in any way inhibited in the way that their lives had been in their own country. Today in Ireland, we are very privileged. Those of us who live in Ireland in this generation, we are a specially blessed generation. We are wealthier, more independent, better educated, more self-confident than any generation which preceded us. But we are a first world country with a third world memory. We don't have to go very far to remember what it like, was like to be poor. We don't have to look very far to see our friends, our neighbours, our brothers, our sisters, our cousins who remain caught in the poverty trap. And so for those of us who belong to this generation, there is a special urgency and a special command, or even a commandment if you like, to ensure that we use these precious gifts well and we put them at the service of the future of all our people. Not a selfish future for the privileged few, but a profoundly better future for all our people. And that is what we look forward to. That, I hope, is what this generation is committing itself to. I'd like to think that perhaps those of you who perhaps have come from an Irish background who will have been here perhaps a, year, a generation, two or three generations back, whose families left Ireland but who believed in it and who continued to believe in it, who sent their dollars back and uh, to help uh, sustain life at home over very difficult periods, who today, whose, whose dollars and cents today help fund the work of the International Fund for Ireland, I'd like to think that you will take pride not just in the accomplishments of today's modern Ireland, but in its continuing commitment to building a fully inclusive society. That when a generation arrived, as it has arrived now, uh, into a world of economic success, it doesn't selfishly gather that success to itself and say, well, we've arrived tough on the rest. But rather it says, 
we can't say we have arrived until we have fully spread the benefits of this new modern dynamic Ireland to all of our people. We aren't there yet. We're well on the way. I want to thank you for your interest here this afternoon, for being here this afternoon, for your attentiveness. I look forward to engaging in some discussion with you, some questions with you. In Irish, may I wish you every success in your own future. Many thanks. President McAleese has kindly um, agreed to answer some questions, so let me invite questions from the floor. Um, when you ask your question, can you please uh, give your name, say, say who you are? Thank you. I'll recognize uh, questioners. Yes. Um. I shall know the peace process, uh, any of you who are watching or listening to uh, the news at the moment, uh, will probably be picking up on a slightly gloomy mood. I think I would put it no, more strongly than a slightly gloomy mood, um, in that George Mitchell, of course, has been re-recruited to facilitate the review of the peace process, the review of the Good Friday Agreement. And there is, um, I suppose, an impatience with those of us, with those who saw the, the great day of the Good Friday Agreement, followed by May 22nd, when the people north and south went toward, where had a joint referendum, and um, those were two glory days when the people spoke with such authority, and people were full of hope. Now, of course, um, every day can't be like that. Every day can't be a Christmas day. Uh, there are days when you just have to get up and get on with life. And the, uh, as my grandmother used to say, you don't have to like it, you just have to do it. And uh, those are the kind of days we're into at the moment because the peace process is a process. We are trying to, cr to create out of a culture of conflict which is centuries old, not just generations old, but centuries old with all its hurts and all its woundedness and all its lack of trust. We're trying to create out of that culture of conflict we are in fact, we're trying to abandon that culture of conflict, to abandon it, to move away from all the things that we have known and to create from a blank sheet of paper a culture of consensus. That is an extraordinarily difficult task. It's an awful lot to demand of people, which is precisely why it was offered to them in, at, at the referendum. They were told, well, are you going to sign up to this? Because if you sign up to it, you're signing up to it personally. It's not something that somebody out there is going to do. You're going to have to do it yourself, internalize it deeply. And it is a process, and I think it's a journey that we're all engaged in somewhat painfully. Trust is a big, big problem for us. We have two sides, both of whom I believe are completely committed to the Good Friday Agreement and to seeing it through, but they don't trust each other. And they haven't yet grown sufficiently or gone sufficiently on the journey to fully trust each other. 
but we're nudging towards trust. Every day, I think uh, another increment uh, in the trust building either happens or, it used to, to put it this way, it used to be in the, in the peace process we went one step forward and two steps backward. Now I think we go two steps forward and one step backwards. I think the maths of that are that we still go forward. And that's where we're up to. But we, we really do need the continuing interest of your government and the continuing uh, help of uh, the, Ameri the goodwill of the American people. That is a very, has been a very important issue because it's given, in particular, I think it's given comfort to the unionists uh, that their story is better understood than it was in the past. And uh, undoubtedly, the work of uh, Senator Mitchell when he was a facilitator for the Good Friday Agreement itself, um, his credibility uh, is such, his standing is such that he brings enormous moral integrity to this job of the review. And we believe that if anybody can find a little space and worry it, and out of that little space find enough of a little thread of trust to nudge the process on a bit further, I think it will be, I think he'll find it. But I also believe he will find it in those hearts. I honestly believe it's not just, uh, it's not based on, the Lord's trying to give us a message here, some description. Um, um, but I think if, I think if um, it's not just a hope that is based spuriously. It's based from knowing the people from whom I come. And I, I intuit from talking to them, from hearing them, from listening, that people are prepared to make the move. We just need, you know, it's like I don't know if you've ever pushed a great big heavy wardrobe. You know, that an awful lot of, the, an awful lot of effort goes into apparently nothing. For the first half hour, you heave and push and nothing happens. And then just when you're about to give up and give it the final push, it moves. And I think that's what we're at at the moment. The final push. Yes. It is one of the great ironies of Ireland's current success, and it's a phenomenon I'd say is not unknown here also, that uh, when everybody is poor, the disparities are not obvious. When the, when the rich start to get richer, the, the, the gap between them and the poor starts to look an awful lot, an awful lot bigger, because the pace of change, the pace of growth and the, the, um, the enwelthening of people, to use a, a made-up word, um, it just, uh, it, it, it suddenly, if you're somebody who is stuck in a rut, um, those who are doing well just seem to be, they, they seem to be moving forward, accelerating at a pace away from you. And you become all the more fearful then that no matter how hard you try, you're never going to catch up. The gap just seems to become impossible. I think that is where you call for, I think what is called for is, um, and, and is a degree of, uh, a fairly significant degree of social responsibility on the part of those who are benefiting from the wealth and understanding that this is not just their resource, it doesn't just belong to them alone, that the future doesn't just belong to them alone and that they do, as part of a community, we are interdependent, we are interrelated, uh, we do care about each other and we have to manifest that care in more than simply words. It has to mean something. We have to engage in the kind of targeting of social needs, to use an, actually an expression that actually is, I think, uh, is used in the United Kingdom, where they actually use this expression, targeting social needs. But I, I think that expression probably encapsulates um, what we need to do, those of us who are the beneficiaries. First of all, understand 
that we have, a, we have an obligation, uh, and secondly, to ensure that that obligation uh, means, makes a difference in the lives of the poor, that they see uh, whether it is um, uh, uh, whether it is delivering adult literacy, because we still have a problem, uh, a significant problem of adult literacy, illiteracy. And in a very literate world, you are de you're excluded from virtually everything if, you're ex if, 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 if literacy excludes you. Um, whether it is creating uh, the right environment for children of the poor so that those children who are able, who are academic, who have got, um, who have got um, the kind of skills which the right environment could help um, give them access to a good education, that they go home to an environment where they are, have a decent meal, where, they, where there are books, where there is access to an encyclopedia to help them with their homework. Those are, those are very basic things. Um, and that's the kind of, uh, we're, we're very blessed at the moment that there are a huge number of initiatives uh, now in train to try and identify uh, the, 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 the panoply of social needs that need to be addressed to create real opportunity. Right. <laughs> I don't think you can. I really don't think you can go very far wrong, if um, if your if your confidence in self never becomes smug self confidence, if it becomes. I think if if, if the self confidence that you have as a person is seen essentially as a gift, a gift that you put. Yes, first of all, at the service of yourself. Of course, put it at the service of yourself. Uh, use it. Utilize it in order to. Make sure that all the talents that are inside you, all the giftedness, that it gets the opportunity to flourish. But then that it doesn't just work selfishly for the self, that it returns that. It returns that gift to the service of others. Because I think that the work that you do for others, uh, I think there is a fear. There is a fear, and you sometimes hear it articulated, that, that if, you, if you outreach to others, they'll drain something away from you. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll divide your goods. They'll leave you deplete. They'll leave you diminished. I don't believe that is. I think the mathematics of it are quite the reverse, that the more you give, the more you understand yourself as part of a community and a caring and sharing community, the more you get back. Uh, I don't think that we are very happily humanly when we live in splendid or wealthy isolation, no matter how comfortable the surroundings are. Uh, I think that we need to engage uh, with our fellow human beings, and all of us know that uh, the marginalized, the poor, the frustrated, and the oppressed. Um, that, the, 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 that the, what comes out of those frustrations, what comes out of that oppression, um, is very often um, uh, is very often the kind is the kind of um, um, expression which makes the world a very miserable place to live in. It outreaches in crime, it outreaches in drugs, it outreaches in people who just are very miserable, depressed, um, problems with healthcare, a lot of issues, miserable children, um, all of those things. Um, I just think we need to we need to keep and if I have a message for you, it would be to keep engaged with that with the community of which you are part, and not just uh, and I mean the community in the broadest sense, uh, not just those who are the achievers and the movers and shakers.
President McAleese, on behalf of the Institute for International Studies and the Graduate School of Business and of Stanford, I'd like to thank you very much for your uh, address and your answers to the questions. Uh, it occurs to me that uh, being precluded from having policies does not stop you from talking about the most important issues, and I thank you for your remarks today. Thank you very much. Um, I would ask you all, please, to remain seated uh, as President McAleese and her party uh, leave the room. Thank you. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.